This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This week, I'm re-releasing episode 10, featuring my conversation with Emily Joy and Hannah Posh of The Flawless Project. This conversation is really wonderful and deserved to be resurfaced. Emily and Hannah, in this conversation, talk about their time at Moody Bible right here in Chicago, their experiences with purity culture, and how they sought to address purity culture's legacy in their own lives. You can follow them both on Twitter. Emily is at Emily Joy Poetry, E-M-I-L-Y-J, excuse me, E-M-I-L-Y-J-O-Y Poetry. And Hannah is at Hannah Posh, that's H-A-N-N-A-H-P-A-A-S-C-H. They're both artists and performers, and please do all you can to support them. If you live in the Nashville area, please seek out uh, Hannah. She performs under the name Ida Gray. And uh, look out for Emily Joy as well um, in Nashville and elsewhere. Please follow them on Twitter and see how you can support them today. You can also follow me on Twitter at BRChastain. And you can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ExvangelicalPod. You can send me email and feedback at contact at ExvangelicalPodcast.com. Or you can call right into the Exvangelical station on Anchor. Anchor is a new app I discussed uh, last week, and it's available as an app on Android and iOS, as well as on the web. You can just search for Exvangelical on the app, or follow the link in my Twitter bio and the Exvangelical bio over on Twitter. As always, you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. And finally, please tell others about the show. If you're on Twitter, please recommend the show with the hashtag tripod. That's spelled hashtag T-R-Y-P-O-D, like tripod, try this podcast. You, you, you get it. <laughs> and please take a few minutes to rate, the, rate and review the show on iTunes. Thank you to Tim Co, uh, T-I-M-C-O-E-001, who shared the following on, uh, on iTunes recently. As a fellow Illinoisan and Midwesterner who grew up completely saturated in the evangelical subculture, this podcast has provided me with much insight and hope at a time in my life where I'd become completely disenfranchised and disconnected from the whole evangelical scene. I recently came out as gay and have found so much hope in the stories of the many people interviewed by Blake. Thank you for this. It's very time, very helpful and timely. Thank you to Stranger Extent, who shared the following. I've only heard three episodes so far, but I've found the conversations very refreshing. Though I haven't considered myself an evangelical for years, now I'm an Episcopalian, I'm still reckoning with the world I grew up in and so much of my family still inhabits. I appreciate finding voices and conversations that reckon with the evangelical subculture as I continue to wrestle with and come to terms with my formative years. I really appreciate that sort of feedback, and if you if you feel similarly, please um, rate and review the show. It does help bump the show up in the iTunes rankings, and the more that happens, the more good stuff sort of happens throughout the podcast world. It has these mystical sort of behind-the-scenes reverberations that, uh, you know, Apple is not too keen on sharing how it works, but 
if we can get the show bumped up into the, in the religion and spirituality section uh, or somewhere else in the what's trending sections of iTunes, that would be phenomenal. And I would greatly appreciate your help, the listeners, in getting the word out about the show. So again, please rate and review the show on iTunes and share the show on Twitter with the hashtag tripod. Not tripod like the accessory for your camera, but hashtag T-R-Y-P-O-D. All right, let's get into this conversation. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me this week Emily Joy. Hi. And Hannah Posh. Hello. From the Flawless Project, a, a site that addresses... Uh, purity culture and a number of other things that are very important and uh, i'm really happy to invite them to the show welcome to the show thank you so much let's start with your backgrounds where where are both of you from where did you grow up uh so uh this is emily uh i am originally from illinois i grew up in central illinois um hannah and i met in Chicago, and then we lived briefly in uh, Phoenix for a little bit. And now, we met on Twitter. We met on Twitter originally. Oh, awesome. met, met in Chicago. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I said I said uh, Hannah earlier. I'm sorry, Hannah. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's great. No. <laughs> um, and then uh, about two and a half years ago, coming up on three, we moved here to Nashville. Okay. So did you? Um, you met on Twitter, and you went. You both went to school in Chicago, as, but you met before I that. I was foodie at the time, and. I was very sad and lonely, and I was working for the Moody Alumni Association and was introduced to Twitter that summer because it was just kind of an up-and-coming thing. It was literally just a way for me to use coupons around the town of Chicago. (laughs) And then uh, one of my very few friends on Twitter was also connected with Emily, and Emily started being sassy to me on the internet. And I was like, who is this person? I like her. Um, and then she ended up coming to Moody that next semester. So the rest was history after that. Um, I, Hannah grew up on the mission field, quote unquote. (laughs) Uh, my parents were missionaries in Mexico and Morocco growing up. So I had a lot of, um, cross-cultural experiences and maybe not entirely the, the standard evangelical, but still very, uh, intensely evangelical, um, experience. Just maybe a little bit more, I don't know, exotic than some of my peers, but um, still definitely kind of uh, influenced by that same sort of theology. Sure. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, we've had a couple of uh, PKs, pastors' kids, on the show, but we haven't had. Yeah. A, you're the first MK, actually, and the first missionary kid. Wow. So, um, <laughs> so what? What Proud was to the... represent. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. MK in the um, house. I am a PK as well. I'm an MK and a PK. So, well, and I'm technically a PK, but also sort of an MK because we were support raised. So I feel like the lines get a little blurry. Did you get a little? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I, I hear you. And my wife is uh, was a PK, and then uh, his her father did a, like a music ministry, and then was support. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah so I I know it gets blurry for sure. <laughs> it sure <laughs> so. does. So um, on the mission field, how did how did yeah. how did that sort of um, I don't know how to I don't know how to really phrase it. How did the sorts of 
like cultural trappings of evangelicalism? How did that sort of follow you around the world? Well, you know, it's interesting. I I feel that um, there were certain aspects of my upbringing that were more uh, progressive in terms of uh, my parents were very strongly um, aware of uh, other cultures and being respectful of them and not trying to colonize or Americanize uh, other people's expressions of faith in other countries. And I so that was a that was, I would say, a very positive aspect of um, what being an MK looked like for me. Um, I, my parents were very staunchly, they became uh, believers in college and they espoused very early on this very strict kind of reformed theology, very Calvinistic in nature, um, which to me always sort of um, didn't play nicely with the whole act of being a missionary. I just... I, as a as a child, I was always so confused how, like, what the point was in going out and preaching the gospel if everybody's fate was already decided. You know, like what yeah. what was the point in that? But um, somehow they made sense of it. God bless them. And uh, yeah, so that was very much. Um, my parents were very passionate. They read a. Uh, Shadow of the Almighty by Jim Elliott when I was a very young child and decided to sell all of their belongings for the Lord and um, go out as missionaries. And I mean, they were quite the adventurous couple. I mean, they didn't go with any missionary organization. They kind of just made their own way, um, which probably held them back in a lot of ways. I mean, we we support raised across 46 states and like just road tripping around the U.S. trying to raise money to go out and be missionaries. Um, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, I would say that's kind of a cursory understanding of it. Okay, and Emily, what what about you? Um, your uh, your upbringing. You said you're a PK as well. Yeah, technically. So my my dad was a Baptist youth minister when I was born. Um, but he then uh, after that he um taught in public school for a while. Uh, and while public school teacher, we were being homeschooled. So I'm the oldest of seven. Um, so he was teaching in public school. We were being homeschooled, and then he was also kind of doing this ministry stuff on the side. And eventually, it got to the place where. Um, he decided to, um, launch his own ministry that was, that was support raised. So it was, you know, it was all stateside stuff, but in, like, in some sense, we, we did the whole, like traveling around to churches, like, you know, asking people for support and that kind of thing too. The itinerant um, preacher. Yeah. Gig. Yeah. Um, so that was my experience, uh, growing up, uh, with family and with church, all very evangelical. Um, not of the, not of the Calvinist variety. I didn't get exposed to that until, um, college really. Um, I'll never which, forget when she had her Calvinist <laughs> enlightenment. We had a, we had a phase. We had a phase. <laughs> uh, we attended a, a desiring God conference in Minneapolis and she was transformed. It was, it was seven years ago this week. I know this because my, my time, <laughs> hop, my time hop was showing me this picture that I surreptitiously <laughs> took of John Piper while he wasn't looking. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, but so for a while I was a, uh, Cal- well, I was a Calvinist and like also a feminist at the same time, and I was I was very fierce, deeply confused. Yeah, no, it was really not a time. That, <laughs> it's not a time that anybody would have wanted to talk to me. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, so that was my experience um, growing up. You know, I 
that was our community was pretty much all people that um, shared those thoughts and feelings and, and thought the same way um, and didn't get exposed to much else until, you know, well after, well after I was an adult. And um, for your adolescence and everything, for both of you, uh, were you homeschooled or were you in public school or were, um, were you in like a missionary school? I know um, both of you have written, have written at, in different ways about about your adolescence yeah. and uh, in, per- in We're particular, still trying to make sense how... of it. Yeah. Like... <laughs> we both had like <laughs> yeah. interesting experiences. Yeah. So I was homeschooled uh, until I was 16 and then I started taking community college classes. And so by the time I ended up at Moody, I had, I had, you know, been taking college classes for a couple of years. Um, but that was, that was, you know, the first time that I had like a non-religious education of any kind um was at 16 um and even then it was you know briefly i was homeschooled uh while on the mission field we moved back right as i was uh finishing junior high and uh my mom decided at that point that she could no longer teach me uh anything that i needed to learn so she decided uh to send my sister and I to college at the ripe old ages of 12 and 13. And so I spent my adolescence at the university, um, which was just an extra level of weird. I mean, just very strange child. Um, but, uh, it, it was very much marked by purity culture. I, I remember my mom took me on a uh, passport to purity retreat when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was just starting, well, when I was just starting to realize that boys were cute, um, and, uh, kind of went through the very, very, um, uh, cursory understanding of sex and abstinence and all that. And, um, we definitely skipped over plenty of areas <laughs> that I would not learn about until I was an adult. Um, but that was sort of our introduction to that, um, at a very, mm-hmm. you know, very pivotal age. Uh, and that sort of followed, yeah, followed me throughout my teens and early twenties. Okay. And I had a similar experience with that as well, where, uh, and like when I, <laughs> when I say this, like, it sounds like way weirder than it was technically, I guess. Cause it sounds like something out of like a, um, like a Southern Gothic, like horror novel where I'm like, yeah, my parents took me out into a barn in the woods. And, but like, this really did happen though. <laughs> um, where they took me, <laughs> where they took me out into this like <laughs> barn cabin in the woods in Illinois when I was 13 and gave me a purity ring and made me promise that it's not weird um i know it's not weird at all right made me promise at at 13 (laughs) and this was at 13 like shortly after like they gave me like a just like a basic understanding of like how babies are made like nothing else literally only like the mechanics of baby making um which is a great (laughs) band name i think um Uh Yeah, there's something there. Um, (laughs) So I had this like cursory introduction to the mechanics of of creating a baby. Um and then was taken out to the barn cabin in the woods and given a purity ring Uh. and uh was made to promise that I would not um hold hands with a boy, always a boy. Never uh, never was it considered that it would be anything other than a boy. Um I wouldn't hold hands with a boy until I was engaged. Um 
to said boy. Uh, and then, like, no kissing, like, anything else until marriage. And she held she held firm to that, even at Moody. I was, I was amazed. Well, like, it was weird. Like, I don't know. I feel like when that's, like, hammered into you. Yeah. It's, like, when it's, when it's hammered into your brain, like, for years and years and years, like, you don't understand how, like, weird or unhealthy it is. And it takes, like, a lot of exposure to other things before you start, before you start to understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they, that started at 13. Yeah, like, I, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't have known better, you know, and then by the time you get to be, like, almost an adult, like, you just kind of carry those things with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, 13, 13 is, like, I mean, even, a like, a, a boy or a girl, like, they're not ready for that. Like, uh, that's, that's, that's a heavy thing to put on a 13-year-old. To make a promise that extends until the indefinite period when you're, um, when you're married. So, and this is where the audio cut out. But this is a great time to remind you that you can follow the show on all the social media platforms that you like: Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pod and all of them, except for Facebook because it's weird. It's Facebook.com/slash/exvangelicalpod. loud and clear now awesome great thanks great <sighs> good all right sorry about that sorry for all <laughs> no, you're good around. you're good no um, worries so um so emily what what brought you to moody was that a choice you made was it something that was kind of heavily um suggested to you or what led you no, not, there not really um you know i was taking classes at community college at 16 because I kind of, you know, I was at a place where I, I didn't really want to like be at my house. Like I was kind of, you know, having family struggles and stuff. So like, I, I was like, well, let me just go to, let me just go to college and stuff. But it wasn't, I didn't have a lot of, um, there wasn't a lot of things that I felt strongly enough to justify pursuing a degree in. Um, but one of the things that I was really interested in was theology. Um, and, uh, so, so for me, it was like, well, this is a thing that I care about. And also it's tuition paid. So it's like, if I can get in, I can afford it. And I won't go into like, you know, tens and thousands of dollars of student debt. Um, so, uh, I applied and I got in, uh, but if I hadn't gotten in, I don't, I, I imagine maybe I just would have kept on taking more classes at the community college while I figured out what I wanted to do. But yeah, no, it wasn't, there was no, um, like pressure behind it or anything or like, you know, if you go, we'll pay for it or anything. You know, I, I paid my way through. Gotcha. Um, so now I, I, I think it, um, this is where you, where you both, where you met or where, where you, where you have a common experience, even though you're in different programs. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. So at that stage, uh, you, you both have different experiences within purity culture and then, was that amplified? Was it just continued at somewhere like Moody or was it, um, how did that, how did that part of the evangelical culture continue yeah. there? Moody, Moody may be the cultural epicenter of purity culture or maybe all like conservative Christian colleges are, but I mean, we saw it played out on a scale that I did not know was possible. I mean, even in, even in Arizona, uh, that being kind of where our home base was and where we moved back to after 
or in between um, missionary endeavors. There was there was a little bit more of a laxness in terms of dress, in terms of interaction. Well, because it's the desert and it's like 120 degrees, you know? Yeah, I mean, there were definitely moments in which, you know, the modesty rules and whatever were enforced. But then, you know, at a certain point, uh, I don't know, some of that becomes um, unuseful uh, in Arizona. But in... in Chicago, um, and especially at Moody, um, it seemed like everybody, everybody who arrived there had spent their entire lives steeped in purity culture. Mm -hmm. And I experienced it more with, um, not that it wasn't there with the men of my hometown, but, um, on a much, much more intense scale, um, among the, the young men of moody Mm -hmm. well and i didn't so like i've never really been like much of a um dater um like it's not like it's just not really been a thing that i've done i mean i saw a couple guys at moody and stuff but um my experience of like purity culture and sexism was primarily revolving around um i was a theology major at moody which at the time and i believe still is um about 90 percent male um the theology major um, they don't, they don't, I mean, they, they can't really bar women from, uh, signing up for the theology major, but they, I mean, they could, they functionally just discourage it. Um, and so I experienced a lot of, um, like sexism just in the day to day, just in like having, you know, I mean, it's the whole, like twice as hard to get half the recognition sort of thing, but it's true though. Like I had, you know, I had to prove myself twice as hard as every single one of my male colleagues because I had to even fight to, uh, convince people that I should be there in the first place. You know, like I had to make an argument for being a woman in a theology major before I could even make a theological argument about any particular point. Um, and so, and, and, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of like weird, um, gendered stuff with that. Like a lot, I, I heard a lot of, um, comments of men of like, well, you know, I don't date theology majors or whatever, like, um, because, there's a the sense, good wives. yeah, because you wouldn't make you wouldn't make a good wife because there's this sense of like you're um, grasping after intellectual things that are too um, high, that high you and lofty. Not be able to have, yeah, yeah. Um, it's too it's too you know heady and stuff. So um, I so, personally yeah. experienced slut shaming mm-hmm. on a, in a which is crazy level. because you didn't even kiss any of those dudes. No, not a single one. Nor did, did I date any of them. No. <laughs> okay, so I think there was the fact that I wouldn't. If you want to know how you can slut shame someone who hasn't even kissed anyone, ask the boys at Moody. <laughs> oh my god. So uh, let's well, let's um yeah um, <laughs> let's uh is there any way to un- unpack that a little bit and then we'll backtrack <laughs> sure. to um we'll we'll, we'll back back up and talk uh talk about Emily I want to talk also about sort of what what these professors and other boys men um yeah were basically stating was the scriptural basis for their sexism um uh, <laughs> uh but H- Hannah what yeah. what was that um I don't even know I, I don't know where to start you uh, <laughs> no. well I'll just I'll just kind of tell the story um they're at Moody. They have kind of this uh, brother floor and sister floor kind of thing. So you sit together at the same table. 
In the and, beginning, God created them. Yes. Brother floor and sister floor. <laughs> and so um, those are the those are primarily the the brothers or the men that you're supposed to, you know, hang out with, do activities with, organized. Um, Call them to walk you home from your job when it's dark. Well, oh, I, which, I mean, that was technically yeah. helpful. Um, but so I didn't actually have one of those uh, because of being in the graduate school, but um, I sort of co-opted my friends uh, because I lived on campus and a lot of the graduate students did not. So um, we ended up uh, spending a lot of time with this particular floor of brothers. And, uh, you know, when I when I was at Arizona State, um, there was this sense of if you were if you met other Christians, you sort of banded together. There was this like <laughs> friendship and camaraderie and it was just like instant insta friendship. Um, <laughs> and so I assumed that going to a Christian college would be like that, you mm-hmm. know, where it would just be, yeah. you know, immediate best friends with every single person on campus. And my extrovert heart was so excited. I think I had that assumption too. Yeah. So, um, I just sort of jumped in with both feet. You know, I was hanging out with sister floor, hanging out with the brother floor. I was just getting to know everybody. And, um, I think my, um, lack of, uh, regarding the rules in terms of how women are supposed to interact with men and also dress. And I, I would just was, I was too much, but at the same time, um, I, I don't know. I gave, I led too many people on. And so I, men at Moody had this really bad habit of interpreting perfectly normal friendship things as like, I want to marry you and have your babies. One time I baked cookies for this guy because I felt bad for him because he was kind of a jerk and he didn't really have any friends. And so I was trying to like reach out to him and like be a nice person. And also I make excellent cookies. And it was kind of a thing that I did. Like I've always made, it's, I've always made excellent cookies. So I just make cookies for people. Like don't take it personally. I mean, it's just like, I'm probably just trying to be nice. I just like to make cookies for people. And, and this guy who I made cookies for because he had no friends proceeded to sit me down and have a talk with me about how I was too aggressive as a woman and that if I wanted to date him, I needed to back off and let him do the pursuing. <laughs> and I was like... That's a lot to is- read into some cookies. <laughs> it, yeah, it was a lot to read into some cookies. So... <laughs> but then, you know, I, I feel like there's a fair amount of perpetuating that goes on with women and kind of this internalized misogyny that makes them think when they, you know, when they see somebody like me not adhering to the unspoken rules, Mm -hmm. um, I was approached, uh, for, you know, rebuke by many peers and older women who perceived that I was not playing by rules that I was unaware existed but i don't even know what you were like specific like what specifically you were doing to lead those guys on i don't think that they could have ever articulated like wearing lipstick and speaking to them i I, think was the equivalent maybe spending time one-on-one or like having prolonged conversations i don't know yeah it's all very nebulous at best so let's start um 
Let's start with the gendered stuff, and then because there's there's just the basic gendered sexism, and then there's a yeah. whole other layer of um of this purity culture expectations mm-hmm. and everything, and it's it's all interwoven for sure, which does affect both genders. Yes, ab- know, absolutely. Um, uh, harmful to both. Yes, absolutely. Um, what I uh the reason why I I, I would really like to explore some of the um, scriptural basis for things and everything. Uh, is really just because I, I, um, I grew up United Methodist. Um, so okay. that's like, you know, so that's, that's more a special me- place in my heart for the United Methodist. <laughs> yeah. So, th- so it, it was like small town, Indiana, um, rural yeah. United Methodist, but like we still had female pastors. Um, so yeah. I, I have, I'm, I'm from a tradition where it was never an issue. Um, mm-hmm. and later on I went to a more conservative, um, college than that. Yeah. Um, and even, even though it was like an affirming sort of college, they, uh, like they ostensibly supported women in ministry, even though there were very few, uh, within yeah. the denomination, um, they like, Bye. they supported it, but, um, but yeah, the actual living that out was not uh-huh. ever very successful. Sure. Uh, and I just, I, there are lots of strong women in, in my life. And so I've never... I've always appreciated that. I've never seen it as a threat. I see strength is strength. Um, and, but I know that there is like a, there is, and I, I know this is weird coming from a, a white guy and I understand that. <laughs> um, and I, I know it's, it's hard for me to talk about gendered things like this. Um, but I mean, I'm also the son, I'm the father of a daughter. So that's my vested interest. <laughs> sure. Um, so I, this is to me, it's always sort of, I see it as like a, um, a curiosity and a very mm-hmm. frustrating and saddening curiosity that, that, um, that you've had to live, live through these things where someone mm-hmm. was taking scripture and saying that you were lesser than them because of it. Yeah. Um, right. So, which they would never say though, you know, they would never say like that, that was never how it was framed. It wasn't like, let me, it, yeah, it's not like, let me tell you why you're lesser. What it was, was let me tell you why we're equal, but you still can't do X, Y, Z. Right, which is you not equal. No, yeah, I mean, right, exactly. It's not. No, it's not equal yeah. at all. But and I, you know. I, I know it, it. It's propagated under the guise of complementarianism. Separate, yeah, uh-huh. separate but equal. I mean, it's the same. Separate. But like, when has uh, that ever been true, though? Never. That's never true. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, what were the just as an example? Um. Let's let's stay stay at Moody for a second. Yeah. What mm-hmm. was what was that like in your in your theology classes? Um. Yeah. Where, um, so it's, it's interesting because, um, like, and it's my understanding from what I've heard. Now, I don't know this because I was um, all in the post-Easley era. Um, at, by that, I mean Michael Easley, who was president um, briefly before before I was at Moody. So it, it's my understanding that... Um, it has not always the the complementarianism gender discrimination has not always been as much of a focal point for Moody. Um, and if you look at, I mean, historically, like freaking Emma Dreyer founded Moody. DL Moody yeah. did not found Moody. Um, so, and all she gets is like this dilapidated brick building named after her that they're probably going to tear down. Um, <laughs> but, but so it, it's my understanding that, um, Shortly before we got there with um, Michael Easley, who was the president, things um, kind of took a nosedive. Um, I mean, I'm sure it was always conservative, but he he kind of um, 
made it sort of like a, a focal point of, of the school's um, distinguish, like distinguishing characteristics. Um, and so, so it was very, I was there at a time where it was extremely, extremely important to talk all the time about complementarianism about, and also specifically at, at Christian college, because, and I mean, sure, if you've been to a Christian college, like, you know, the whole, like, um, ring by Springer, your money back, like Moody Bridal Institute, these kind of jokes, right? So because marriage is like this massive, uh, focus is not, it's a, it's an obsession. So because marriage, heterosexual marriage is this massive obsession, it's an um, end all be all. Yeah. Then, then theolo- you see that obsession played out theologically. So sure, sure. I yeah. was there at a time theologically where, because we we're obsessed with marriage and which was really an obsession with sex, um, <laughs> that we have to play this out theologically and talk so much all the freaking time about, you know, why this is the case. And, um, I mean, really like, I, and I don't mean to be like, um, like glib or like condescending, but it's really just like, it's just a really like fundamentally bad hermeneutic misunderstanding of Paul, like misattribution of Pauline letters. Like it's, if you want to get like, like technical and like get into the theology about it, like it's just like a really, really, really bad reading of Paul for the most part. And a really, really, really bad reading of Hebrew poetry. Um, but and a very limited reading of Jesus. Yeah, and a very <laughs> limited reading of Jesus who said no things. Um and uh and so yeah, I, I think that um there's I mean Moody is in like the biblical literalist sort of strain of hermeneutics, and so because of that, like it's it's this very um you know, the Bible is clear. In fact, perspicuity is one of the main um qualities about the Bible. Uh, that that we had to learn perspicuity being um, its clarity that anybody with a brain could sit down and read it and get basically the same because the Holy Spirit makes the Bible clear it it facilitates that perspicuity um, I paid Moody forty thousand dollars to learn that word so I hope that everyone appreciates it. <laughs> but so but so yeah so there's this like biblical literalist sort of thing so like. Um, you know, now of course it doesn't apply to everything. It doesn't apply to like, you know, um, don't eat shellfish or, uh, it's okay to have slaves or cover your head. You know, it's, it's a selective biblical literalism, but biblical literalism nonetheless. Um, and, and basically everything else, um, crops out of that. And, you know, like I said, when you're obsessed with, with marriage and sex, then you become obsessed with that theologically. Um, and when you combine that with a, like a, a really, um, like, naive and modernist hermeneutic you get like some really whack stuff um (laughs) (laughs) that may be the first time the words hermeneutic and whack were used in the same sentence (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) that's basically emily summed up in one sentence Uh (laughs) (laughs) um so what 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 happens what happens next where do you where do you take all these experiences and how like and yeah what what happens what happens to you after after college uh you know i'm mm. i'm kind of thinking through this and whether to just go like straight to how this affected your relationships through purity culture and kind of yeah um uh how that how that began to manifest as you got older and as you had more mature relationships. Yeah. Um, well, part of the next big thing was 
the purity culture rehab project because so after Hannah had gone back to Arizona, I graduated. I dropped out. Yeah, I she, couldn't do that. She dropped out. I probably should have. I don't even know why they gave me a piece of paper. I have one. It says I'm um, certified for Christian ministry. Um, so I don't think this is what they meant. But um, so oh, I stayed in Chicago for like a few months and then I moved to Arizona with Hannah and her sister. So the three of us we're living and I would say we got drunk in the desert for like a good nine months like I mean when, when you think <laughs> just like talking about yeah this just stuff. like how how do you like get through it or start to break through like literally that's what we did we just like drove out to the desert and build fires and drank beer for like nine months and cried a lot um but then so we were we were and out there stood up and uh, jumped up and down on our couches yeah shouting there was a things. lot of couch shouting um, couch theology. Um, <laughs> and, and I think for us, because we met on Twitter, our, um, our involvement with conversations transpiring on Twitter began uh-huh. to kind of evolve at that stage. And I remember, cause that was when people on Twitter were starting to have this conversation surrounding like Christian feminism. And like, so I started yeah. reading Rachel Held Evans. Mm-hmm. I remember reading, um, I think for me, the seminal moment was reading Sarah Bessie's post about uh, losing her virginity pre-marriage. That was my introduction to Sarah Bessie and also to the idea that there could be something other than purity Mm -hmm. culture. Like at that point, I had just decided that maybe I was just a rebel and I was going to be okay being wrong. Um, and then I read that post and just like erupted into tears in the parking lot of the preschool I was working at. And, um, from there, um, I forced Emily to move to the desert and talk with me for a long period of time. And, uh, we, we created (laughs) possibly our best idea today. I think think honestly we peaked at the purity culture rehab project. I think it's pretty much all been (laughs) done. Well, we, so we, I, I remember clearly we were walking to, um, the gas station to buy more wine after drinking all the wine <laughs> currently in our house, uh, because in Arizona you can buy wine at the gas station because it is the wild west and you can't, you can't do that in Tennessee. It's really sad. Um, uh, yeah. Bible Tennessee call. is uh yeah. Tennessee's crazy. You can't even buy wine and liquor in the same spot. Yeah. <laughs> we got wine in the grocery stores now just this summer. Hey, it was a very big stat. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, we were walking to the gas station and, um, I recall that somehow we came up with the idea that we would do this series of challenges to eradicate purity culture from (laughs) our lives and we would blog about it. So on this list of things that we had to do was kiss a boy, which neither one of us had done Mm -hmm. in our mid, like early to mid twenties at this point. No, we were 22. I was 23. Yeah, you were 23. <laughs> I, I was 22. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and neither one of us had had a proper, like, dating relationship in years because of all of the weirdness yeah. that had transpired. So, um, anyway, so that was on the list. Lose our kissgenity. Um, we had to ask a, a, a boy, boy out, out on a date. Um, we got a tattoo... Um, that says Eshet Shayil, which was, it means woman of valor. And it was Rachel Held Evans' thing at the that time. That was her, kind of her mm-hmm. mantra at that point. Um, what else did we do? There were many of them. I flipped a guy off in the parking lot of the for cat calling for you. cat calling me. Same gas station. That wasn't same gas station. That wasn't on that list. But once I did it, I put it on the list and then crossed it off as if it was. Uh, yeah, it felt important. <laughs> 
setting so um yeah it was just a it was a series of kind of taking back um ownership of our lives and bodies um definitely baby steps but at the time it was it was truly truly Mm life-changing um and i think some of our probably some of our best writing came out of that as well well and our best friendships too we met so many people we met so many people like on the internet uh through that through that project that like we're still friends with like oh yeah they come through town and sleep on our couches like that was like a really like meaningful period of time experience for us so that kind of like it's funny because like you know, it's it's such like a like a silly thing to be like, let's do a purity culture rehab project and eradicate purity culture entirely. And when we <laughs> when we are done with it, we will have been rehabbed from purity culture. Um, I think th- we thought we were though. Th- I, no, I know we thought we were thinking that you could undo two decades of indoctrination in six months. Um, yeah, with a series of essays, but you know, yeah. it was a it was. But definitely- you know, when you're 22, that sounds correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> We say it's a ripe old age of, of 25 and 26, yeah. but um, we know so much better now. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, that was that was sort of where the break began, I think, mm-hmm. for us. And and in that, we started to receive quite a bit of pushback from mm-hmm. our respective um, church situations. Families. Um, I had a lot of pastors beginning to take notice of me in a negative way um, and trying to... I wasn't going to church at that time. Sometimes they would ask me and I would go and then I would stand up and walk out in the middle of service. So we got to the point where we were like, "Mm, better not ask me. It's better for all of us if I don't go. And what sort of churches were you going to at the time? I was was attending the church that I that I grew up in, um, that I went to all through college. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, they, they had made uh, a few progressive steps forward, I would say, in, in certain areas mm-hmm. and, and had remained conservative in others. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I was I was still attending church at the time and trying to make the evangelical thing work for me. And uh, Emily, at that point, had kind of I had decided stopped, that wasn't yeah. for you. And I think that's uh, shortly after that is when you started uh, picking up the Episcopal. Yeah, thing. so I, I didn't go to church for maybe like six or seven months. Uh, when we lived in Phoenix, except for like on Easter. And then I landed in the Episcopal church. Um, cause I looked on Twitter and I was like, well, everybody that I like listening to what they have to say on Twitter goes to Episcopal church. So (laughs) let me just Google Episcopal churches in Phoenix. Um, and, uh, and so I've been in the Episcopal church ever since, but I'm, I'm not confirmed, uh, or anything. I don't, I don't believe in that shit. I'm very low church. I'm very low church Episcopalian, um, if that's a thing. <laughs> so um, let's. I, I know. Let's let's talk a little bit in more specifics about purity culture too, uh, and kind of give the listeners a little primer. Yeah. Uh, um, in addition to things like thirteen-year-old um, purity pledges and everything, yeah, uh, a major part of it was. Um, I guess dating goodbye, mm-hmm. um, boy okay. meets girl, yeah. all those and uh, those two books in particular. Yeah. Um, uh, I worked in a Christian bookstore in uh, high school. So you know, um, mm-hmm. and part of college. So I was, you know, I, that was uh, there was an, also another series of books uh, for um, for men and for yes, the porn boys. ones. Um, Every man's struggle. 
Oh, yeah. And, I think it's every man's battle. Oh, yeah. yeah. Every man's battle. You I got it. I think it was yeah. every young man's battle. Yes. And so, battle, and then every woman's battle, and every young But I'm pretty battle. sure every woman's battle was about, like, just being too emotional or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean... Because <laughs> well, women don't, you know, have sexual impulses, mm-mm, naturally. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I know from from reading that book, uh, it, it wasn't... I, I worked in the I worked in the bookstore. And that was my what I wanted to do, uh, and I was a voracious reader. So mm. I was reading a lot of the books. I you know I got yeah. like thirty five percent off. You know, um, <laughs> how can you and, resist? <laughs> and um, and also just uh, I was I was in I was in the youth group culture. I was yeah absolutely uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, all that was there. Um, so I read like every both every man's battle and every young man's battle. I read both of them mm. for whatever reason. Both of them were written by a guy that like. Uh, and the guy um, wasn't a Christian before, and he he would he talked about like how much you would sleep around and everything, and then he got to how you weren't supposed to do that <laughs> because he became <laughs> a, because he became a Christian. and He told a really graphic story. Of, he writes in it. He writes a really graphic story about um, what you know what kind of convicted him about it, and it's really <laughs> look it up. Or I mean, here's the story. He couldn't. He became a Christian, and then he started to hook up, and then he physically couldn't. Um, yeah. Fine. So, anyways, and that's and that's in a book you're supposed to read about how you're not supposed to look at women, um, yeah. and that's who the person you're supposed to listen to. Um, but hashtag logic. <laughs> but the um, but I mean, definitely within within my youth group, and this was even at like a it was a United Methodist youth group but it also had a lot of the evangelical trappings and totally yeah everybody was reading that book and yeah. everybody was assuming that was the gold standard mm. um that was what you were supposed to do i guess yeah um, mm-hmm. right i mean e- even i like it's 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 in plain sight that there yeah. are different standards for for men and women and boys mm-hmm. and girls yes so I just want to hear from the two of you. I don't. <laughs> I, I want to. I want to hear from the two of you about your experience being on that side of the uh, of the gender yeah. equation. So, sure. I know for a fact that there are um, sex education tidbits that my parents went over with my brother that they did not go over with me. Um, which is yeah, and then. Also, like, um, so, like, not only did they tell my brother certain things that they didn't tell me, even though he was younger, um, but also, um, I, it, it was never really, like, I don't know that it was ever really expected. They, they kind of did the same thing to him, the whole, like, I'm going to make you promise all these things when you're super young and don't know any better sort of thing. By the time that they got down to some of my younger sisters, they had kind of backed off a little bit about that. But my brother and I were only 18 months apart, so we kind of shared some of those experiences, um, and I don't think it was ever really expected that he would follow it, and he didn't, and he never felt the impulse to either. He never, I don't think it ever, um, I think he had his first kiss, I mean, I know it was in high school sometime, but, like, uh, like I don't think that he, like, had Carried a sense the of, weight of, he that. didn't carry the weight of it. It was never, um, it was never put on him of, like, you're gonna ruin yourself or steal something from a future spouse or something. Like if I had, if I had kissed a boy in high school, I would have destroyed myself with guilt for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And I don't think, I I mean, I know that wasn't my brother's experience, Um, you know, and I'm sure part of it is personality, but I think part of it is because like as a dude, he wasn't, um, 
probably expected to carry the weight of that as much. Well, and there's a little bit more, I feel, of an oops mentality with men where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, hey, slap on the wrist. Don't do that anymore. And I'm yeah. sure I'm sure the shame does exist there for for women, though, the more that you give away, the more you don't have to give to your yeah. future partner or spouse. So, you know, for for us, there was much more of a sense of a loss of value with uh, new experiences mm-hmm. um, regarding relationships and sexuality. So, um, there, a lot of a lot of fear kept yeah. us from those things because we were. Uh, Concerned about losing value in the eyes of God, in the eyes of our parents, our peers, the church. Well, and I don't know about you, but like, I'm, I, this is just a thought that occurred to me just now because I was thinking about, thank God I'm a virgin. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I ever expected, like, any potential future male spouse to be a virgin when we got married. I didn't really. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't expect that, which I, which was weird. Cause I feel like at Moody, I talked to a lot of guys who were, who were expecting that, who were saying like, I, I want my wife to be a virgin. I'm not going to marry a girl. if She's not a virgin, which is why I wrote the poem. Thank God I'm a virgin. But I was, I was thinking about it just now. And I was like, you know what? I don't think I ever expected that of a future male spouse. And even even at and my I don't know anybody. I, I didn't know, and I never knew any girls that were like, "I'm That's only going to marry a guy if he's a virgin." Yeah. Like, I think you're taught to expect less from from men because they can't control it or something. You know, boys will be boys. Yeah. Um, which I think is, I mean that that is a that is also a mistreatment of men in. Um, the way that they are treated, like they can't possibly have self control. Well, it's make- just a fundamental misunderstanding of consent. Like, have it if you want to, don't if you don't. But like. This idea that, like, men are going to not be virgins because they just can't help but have sex with whatever walks, you know, like... Yeah. I'm just saying that that it doesn't give men credit for being able to... Make choices? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To exercise consent? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think for... I think that was sort of uh, kind of the the fear that led us mm-hmm. uh, into continuing those um, behaviors or lack of behaviors uh, into our adult lives. Hmm. And then, I mean, these, these lopsided expectations are millennia old. Um, sure. Yeah. Like, uh, Surely. Uh, yeah. And then that doesn't excuse them. Um, it's no. And, but this, new manifestation through purity culture and the way that it is um the way that it is communicated through religion uh and it always had a veneer of religion at least you know whenever Mm -hmm. things were political um you know marriages or whatever um and there there would always be demands that so-and-so is a virgin or whatever Mm -hmm. um whatever those might be but this this modern movement is it's it's a new thing. It's it's yeah. a it's a new form of it. Um it's and true. and I really liked as far as like your your essay on uh, when falling in love is God's idea. Um mm-hmm. that essay being like it's not even within your um mm-hmm. it's not in your like locus of control. It's not of your own volition at all. It's not yeah. it's you're completely subservient um to the wishes of a man and of a of of God. Well, was seen as inappropriate. 
And I think that caused me that caused me personally to engage in a lot of dating relationships that I was not in retrospect interested in at all. But <laughs> I had I felt the need to, you know, well, why don't you just give the nice guy a chance? He's trying so hard. And also, you know, I, I sort of thought that like God's love story for my life was out there somewhere and I had to like find his will. It, it had very little to do with what I actually wanted. And a lot of times, you know, you would, you would be confronted with these dudes who would, um, truly believe i don't think that they were like trying to pull one over on me i think no, they truly no, believed that they heard from god yeah that they were supposed to pursue you and i'm like well who am i to to argue with yeah. god on that and so yeah it was there was very much this sense of well and, and when, when pleasure is demonized too sometimes like yeah i, I dated a few guys that i wasn't attracted you should to be either. miserable yeah and so it's like well i'm not attracted to him but like god probably doesn't want me to like experience like that like love like that kind of like sexual feeling anyway so it's probably like oh yeah i actively... or, or maybe god is trying to like teach me to be like a better person by mm-hmm. making me date somebody that i'm not attracted to <laughs> I, I actively avoided humans that i was attracted to yeah uh physically because i thought that that was that was what lust meant was sexual attraction physical attraction yeah. so um you know, I, I I always ended up finding myself entangled with people I did have emotional interest in, but it was mm-hmm. very it was very disconnected from the body, and it was very much this kind of like soul romance, you know. Mm-hmm. But then when it came to like the the nuts and bolts of being together, and I was repulsed by holding somebody's hand, that didn't oh, really yeah that didn't really get very far. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So with that, I mean, um, feel free to not answer this question, but how has it affected, um, your long, your more longer term relationships have, um, are Hmm. either of you married or have been married? Uh, I am married. Um, I am just, I'm recently divorced. Um, and I, I engaged, I think that, yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I was very much not rehabbed from purity culture um, when I met my former spouse um, and, again, was very uh, not physically attracted to him. But that, that didn't really that didn't come into play with me choosing him as a partner because that was, you know, ungodly. Um and I, and I think, too, I mean, you and I were talking about this, how when you've had no sexual experiences, the very, like, act of being mm-hmm. able to engage in that is very exciting. Like, And it, it's, it's disorienting. I, I always yeah. compare it to, like, when you first start drinking and, like, you can't tell the difference between, like, a Bud Light and, like, a craft beer. And, like, a craft something. beer. You know, like, because it all tastes the same. And then after a while, you're like, oh, these are different. I like this. I don't like this. But it's very disorienting when you yeah. start having sex because it's all like when you start drinking and everything feels the same and it's great and you're just like so excited to not be repressed anymore that it takes a like it does. It took it's taken me a really long time even just to like sort out like you know like what it, what I like what I don't like because like it's yeah. it's just so weird and you have such a weird relationship with it. Well, um, in all areas of life I think um not just in relation to attraction and sexuality but you're uh, I was, I was very much indoctrinated with this idea of, um, you know, sacrificing for God. And so 
my own interests and pleasures and, and like unique things that I liked, especially on the mission field that there was kind of this sense of like, well, you eat what's put in front of you. You Mm -hmm. take what you, you take what you're given. Like you make the best of it. You make it work. Like they're just all of these like unhealthy ideas. So, um, for me, and, and that's not, that's not the main reason that, uh, my marriage ultimately devolved. But I think, um, I think there was a lot of that for him too. I think he was very, um, I think he, he, he pushed us to get married very quickly because of this sort of like, well, you know, uh, the longer that we're in a relationship and not married, the more chances there are of sexual sin. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and we were trying to really play it cool and pretend like that wasn't, uh, affecting us as much as it was. Um, so it was just kind of a general shit show <laughs> no, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and I can, I can joke about it now, but it was truly awful. <laughs> well, and so I got married shortly after Hannah did. Yeah. Um, we were engaged but, at the same time. But uh, my spouse and I were in a relationship um, for... A, a, a year long distance. Um, but I had, you know, it's like, I feel like our relationship, I like, I love my spouse. We're happily married. Um, but I think it's primarily because we like did a lot of like really intentional, really hard work and pretty much just said like, screw all the rules. And it started by screwing the rules because I asked him out, um, about a week before I moved out of state because I did um, you. I well, because full disclosure, he was my boss. And so, like, I had a fat crush on him for, like, nine months while we were working together. And so the whole – always I would come home and I'd be like, oh, my God, my manager is so cute. I'm totally going to ask him out when we move, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And so I did, of course, you know, because I had been, like, talking shit about it for nine months. So I was like – I couldn't, like, wimp out at that point. Like, I had to do it. Um, oh, I'm so tired of hearing about it. Just yeah. ask him out already. So <laughs> so we were in a long-distance relationship. Um and it it was nice because it kind of gave me the space to like I'm a very like uh, um like slow mover on things. Um usually I feel like I have to I, I change gradually over time. Um and so for me, I think that kind of gave me um the space to like decide in my head like I am ready to take this step physically or this step sexually, whatever, and then and then be able to implement that like in, in like a, like a, a drawn out sort of time. Um, and he was super cool with that. Um, he was raised uh, Catholic. Um, and so he kind of got like some of the true love weight stuff, but not in any way, the way, um, that, that we did. And so, um, you know, I obviously wasn't his first, which I'm very thankful for. Um, and to be honest with you, like, I don't know, I guess like growing up, like you hear all these weird stories of like, you're going to be so sad when your spouse tells you that they slept with other people. And I was like, I really was not sad at all. Like, mm. I, I don't really think oh, about it. He's got some glad funny. Glad one of us knows what's going on. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, so, he's got some funny stories. Like, sometimes <laughs> sometimes we laugh about it. Like, I don't know. You know, like, it's not like in a healthy relationship that there's not this thing where you need to, like, sit down and, like, divulge everything that's ever happened to you. And then they have to decide if they still want you or something. You know, that just is not right. happen. But they make it seem like it's going to happen. So, um, so I, I, I feel that, you know, having that space to be able to make those decisions is really good for us. And then also, I mean, just like, you know, like we, (laughs) we didn't wait till we walked down the aisle and said some words to do it because, um, 
you know, I felt like that I didn't, I didn't really want to, um, have like a really awkward interaction on, on my wedding night. I felt like that would be, um, not very much fun. So if that's TMI, I don't know, but it's the truth. Um, and so, um, so I hope, uh, none of our parents are listening to this. Um, I'm over it at this point. Yeah, same. Um, so, (laughs) so, uh, so, but that's not to say that like, that like, like our marriage is good, but like, that's not to say that like, I, I still am not uncovering constantly ways in which purity culture is screwing it up. Um, you know, like it, you, you can get out of it, but it's hard to get it out of you. Um, and I think that like, you know, like, like I mentioned with like the differences between beer thing, like there's, there's this like adjustment period of like, um, you know, how do we figure out how to communicate about these things when I was basically taught to like, not talk about it, you know, my whole life or like, turns out I'm bisexual. I didn't come out to my husband until after we had already been married a year. Um, so like, like there's all these you like didn't know because I didn't know because I I was just like that naive like it sounds silly but like I was just super naive and so so th- there is this sense of like that wasn't even a possibility I feel like I'm pretty lucky in terms of how my story has turned out so far in light of everything however you are you even are still lucky. I feel like I'm uncovering ways in which you know those those mindsets are still kind of kind of tripping me up. Um, and it's like a, it's like a daily thing of like, am I thinking that because I really think that or because that's legitimate or am I thinking that because this was indoctrination for 20 years? Like, and you have to like consciously think that and parse it out and it's difficult. Yeah. And you're doing that. You're, you are doing that also in public to a degree because you've yeah. begun, mm-hmm. um, you've begun the flawless project, uh, which yeah. is a site that both of you, um, founded together, uh, mm-hmm. to really explore these issues in in the open, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it that you're trying to do there as well um, at the Flawless Project where um, – because there's, there's all this complication between – I mean, there's gender issues, there's sexuality issues, mm-hmm. there's all these different things. Not to, and I mean, even t- general basic comfort with sexuality as well as different expressions of sexuality. Um, yeah. How are you doing that in the public sphere through the Flawless Project? Well, I think um, the Flawless Project kind of seemed like uh, the logical next step for us um, after uh, the Purity Culture Rehab Project. Um, for for us, the the purview of the Flawless Pro- Project is basically celebrating the flawlessness of women, allowing uh, women of all different. Um, cultures, backgrounds, races, ethnicities, sexualities, to feel empowered to tell their stories. Um, uh, It turns out that a lot of the things that we post are written by us, but a lot of things are also written by others who, you know, have something Mm -hmm. like my sister, um, who is uh, currently engaged to a woman, but had had only uh, heterosexual relationships before that. She wrote about um, how, how, experiencing roles within relationships mm-hmm. once it's not like this is the things that the man that the men do <laughs> they take out the trash and they uh-huh. mow the lawn you know like how to uh restructure relationships in a way that um 
shows true gender equity. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's been really inspiring and exciting to see the kinds of things that people want to write about. Mm-hmm. Some people want to write, some women want to write about their mental illness. Some people have wanted to write about, um, about purity culture. I think that, uh, purity culture is still definitely, um, an issue that is mm-hmm. recurring and, and constantly sort of at the forefront of the conversations that we want to have. But I think, um, one of our good friends grew up in a cult and she's been writing like a series of essays <laughs> about like weird things that happen in her cult growing up. Like, you know, it, oh, and, and, and the idea is like to like, so not everybody is, a, is like a great writer. Right. And that's okay. Like we're all good at different things, but like, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of spaces online where you can tell your story and stuff. But um, if you're a great, if writer. you're a great writer and if you can pitch, and to this very exclusive site or whatever. And, like, so one of the things that we do is, like, by the time something gets published, it, it grammatically and syntactically makes sense and has been, like, you know, edited and stuff. But, like, like that's all, like, stuff that we just, you know, we just have, whether you're a good writer or not, like, send it to us. And then, like, if it doesn't make syntactical sense, whatever. I'll go through, like, that's, that's, or like. would you add more on this subject? Yeah. Or, you know, but, but it's, like, a service because I'm trying to be, like, not everybody is a good writer, but everybody does have a story to tell, and every woman has a story to tell, and so so we're trying to be a, a space that's, like, non-exclusive, um, where you don't have to be, like, this great professional writer to be able to tell your story. And I think for us, we wanted, um, we we were starting to see as we were having these conversations on Facebook and Twitter that a lot of, um, a lot of the people who were engaging us were women who were slightly younger than us, mm-hmm. you know, teenagers, college students who were hearing this stuff for the first time the way that we had heard it for the first time from the Rachel Held Evanses and the Sarah Bessies. And so um, for us, I think uh, we were inspired by the thought that maybe um, the generation coming up after us maybe wouldn't have to wander around so blindly in the dark and maybe uh, maybe we would be able to shine some light on some of this stuff before um you know they had to go through some of the heartbreaks and this before they have to um lose their kissgenity by asking a boy to kiss them on purpose and blog about it or you know <laughs> getting divorced at the age of 25 because yeah. of purity culture you know like the just things that mm-hmm. that um, before you come out to your husband after being married a year like <laughs> <laughs> let's talk right so I think that's that's the that's the general um, idea behind the Flawless Project. We've used it a lot lately um, to engage the um, I kiss dating goodbye mm-hmm. conversations um, because that is that is our main platform. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is it's definitely at the forefront of the conversations that mm-hmm. we want to be having. But we really want it. We want the Flawless Project to be an inclusive space. We're both white women, but we don't want to center mm-hmm. whiteness. Well, and um, also just the idea of like, I, I think a lot of our, the, a lot of the women that have written for us are Christian, but we're not trying to be like a Christian, like post evangelical site. Like uh, we are post evangelicals or ex evangelicals, if yeah. you will. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of our friends are too, because that's how, that's our community. That's where we grew up and stuff. But, um, you know, we're not, we're not trying to have it be like, specifically about that too um, right because because you know experiences of being a woman um you know vary across religious lines as well and so yeah um Definitely. so yeah that's a thing that we're that we're working on 
um, is sort of expanding beyond just our immediate community. But, um, but it's been like so rewarding, like so far, oh like I, I get, I read yeah. these stories and I'm like, how, like, I feel how, so honored. How are we the ones that like people are sharing this with? I know it's, it's, it's truly humbling. It's been great to read too, because, um, I mean, I, I follow both of you on Twitter. I'm a huge Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fellow Twitter addict. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, reading them as they, as they come up and checking your site, I mean, they're, they're very moving stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Absolutely very moving. Um, whenever, in relation to Twitter, uh, like, you know, usually if someone's into Twitter, they're super into Twitter. (laughs) uh, Like they don't, they only, they only have super fans really. Or they're like an egg that tweets every six months. (laughs) Yeah. There's very little in between. That's right. So on Twitter, I, um, one, uh, one thing that I, I have been observing, cause I don't really have anything to, to add. I, I have, okay. I, what I have yeah. to, what I have to gain is to listen yeah. in this context. Um, and I see conversations around, um, usually around things like, um, the Q faith hashtag or the kiss shame by hashtag, um, still purity culture, um, mm-hmm. uh, I I I kiss dating goodbye stories or I K I K D J D G stories. Um, yeah, yeah, all we're those... all for that. <laughs> so those those um, what what can people gain um, just by seeking seeking those stories out, those voices, yeah. those small little things that are being shared, tweet by tweet um, online. What uh, for other women that are out there uh, that I that may be processing these things. Um. The the. I kiss dating goodbye, the IKDG stories and the life after IKDG um, hashtags and kiss shame bye were all um, uh, were very much sort of um, engineered by uh, a lot of incredible minds um, that have uh, populated Twitter with their blogging and writing. And um, so I think that there's some there's some amazing wisdom to be found in those conversations. Um, I think the fact that they're happening in real time alongside, mm-hmm. you know, Joshua Harris's <laughs> sort of weak, uh, non-apology, non-apologies. Um, and just, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who haven't, who did read those things and haven't processed them mm-hmm. until now, you know? So for us, this is, you know, this is an extenuation of conversation we've already been having, but for a lot of people, the light bulbs are going on uh-huh. right now. And it is, it's, it's really interesting to see that happening in real uh-huh. time and, and very sobering as well, um, because it just shows how much work there is still to be done and uh-huh. um, the dismantling of those um, oppressive theological systems. Yeah. And there, there's still a few more years. Like I think of like, like probably my youngest sisters are never going to read I Kiss Dating Goodbye, but there's still, there's still a few more years after us that did. Yeah. Like we're, I would say probably people who are like, I know people who are like 20 that well, read we were, it, you know, I mean, like we were started on Boy Meets Girl. Uh-huh. I think you read that one first. Too, I read Boy Meets Girl. We you? both read Boy Meets Girl because first, we weirdly were on, enough. I think we were at the beginning of kind of the second generation yeah. of readers. Um, and so that was sort of a weird, you know, we started with yeah. courtship and then ended with the kidding dating mm-hmm. goodbye. <laughs> so 
But I think your I think your posture of listening is really important. I like that's huge. Yeah, I find myself talking less of my own thoughts on Twitter now than I ever have. Same. Uh, like like I'll engage specific people uh, or or like retweet things, but like I don't like. I don't rant like I used to, which is probably, <laughs> probably good. I mean, every once in a while I get going, but um, but I think uh, one of the one of the uh, super interesting and also like infuriating make me want to like smash my head against the wall multiple times things about um, the I kiss dating goodbye hashtag and the kiss shame by hashtag and the still purity culture hashtag and all all these conversations that we've been engaging in in the last couple months is. Like, there's this, like, very specific set of, like, um, dudes, almost always dudes, pretty much all dudes, who, like, are, like, hang around on the tag to, like, make comments like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, purity's still important, Joshua Harris didn't invent purity culture, blah, blah, blah. Like, supremely Yeah, just, like, basically, so, I mean, and the thing is that, like, these hashtags and these like online spaces were created for people to be vulnerable and to like share their experiences. And there's this whole subset of, of specifically dudes, um, who are like kind of post evangelical. Like they probably swear and drink craft beer, but they still think being gay is a sin. Like that's where these dudes are at. And so, and they, they just want without being vulnerable, or sharing how purity culture affected them, which I'm sure that it did. Rather, they have inserted themselves in this conversation to kind of like caution people and like tell them what to do. And I just like it was so it it was so frustrating. This, like, cautionary pastoral, uh-huh. this sort cautionary of voice. pastoral role. Oh my god, yes, it's on so Twitter. Crazy. Yeah, on Twitter, on Twitter, <laughs> and it's so like it was frustrating. I wanted to like light my computer on fire, but also like it was so freaking fascinating to me because it was just like it was like. You, it was like a like a textbook play out of like all these different like shaming tactics and like sexism and gaslighting and tone policing and all this stuff and you you could like see it in real time coming and I was like wow like this is really interesting um, so and they're just acutely unaware of it yeah I just think that I think that the posture of listening is extremely important um, and I I would say that eighty like I am less and less obsessed with. Twitter, primarily because as I get older, I realize that um, my my voice, uh, not to discount myself, but like my voice is less necessary in like, you know, for example, the race conversation, what's going on right now uh, mm-hmm. in our country. I, I sit there and I will retweet uh, yeah, black I'm not, activists. I'm not, I'm not trying to like make tweet and get a million retweets about race or something you know what I'm saying well, like, yeah. yeah I mean that's just not it's not no. necessary and and um I think I am trying to continue to adopt um a posture of humility around the areas in which I have an enormous amount of privilege as a mm-hmm. you know as a white person as a straight passing person as a you know um sachet uh, person like um you know, those are all areas in which I carry an enormous amount of privilege. And, um, so any more Twitter for 
for me is a place of amplifying uh, voices that are already speaking with much more uh, wisdom and insight than I have into any of those areas and, and, and amplifying, you know, our, our writers and posters and mm-hmm. whatnot on the flawless project. So um, it's less of a, uh, for a time there, I really felt like Twitter was a place where I, I was like learning in real time and interacting with mm-hmm. like these acclaimed authors who were also, yeah. uh, you know, speaking in on the same conversations. And it was really rich and it, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but I mm-hmm. I feel like that sort of um, post-evangelical, like rich learning familial kind of community. It was great, but it was rather volatile. It was. Because we were all only in that space for a very brief period of time and then kind of branched off into separate things. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think, like, as much as, like, uh, you know, like, I feel like I do a lot more, like, retweeting and stuff now, I also think, like, things like still purity culture and stuff, like, this activism use for Twitter is kind of incredible. Um, it really is. You know, like, even, like, a couple of years ago, when I guess it was, like, two years ago now, when the um, MBI privilege thing happened. Wow, yeah. Um, so at Moody, uh, like, the African-American student group has, like, been getting their stuff vandalized for years. Like, people will, like, tear up their posters and, like, write stuff on them and stuff. Like, it's just, you know, like, run-of-the-mill, like, you know, racist Racism. pastors, kids from Ohio who, you know, are just idiots. And so, but like Moody is populated with those people. Um, and so, so that's been always happening. Um, but, you know, it's the internet age now and somebody took a picture of it um, and posted it on the internet a couple years ago. And it just exploded. Um, it, it exploded to the, to the point of like you had um, Moody theology professors who were on student Facebook groups going on about how white privilege isn't real, it's divisive, it's against church unity, it's unworthy of Christian discourse. That was a real phrase that was used. Um, And so, uh, you know, obviously the internet is forever, so we all took screenshots uh, and and uh, and we made a hashtag out of it, which was uh, hashtag MBI privilege. And, you know, it got like the attention of I think the Chicago Tribune had a write up. I wrote yeah. a, I wrote a piece in Relevant for it at the time, um, and we and and the administration. I mean, I'm sure they knew about it for all of the years that it's been happening. Never said boo. Oh, yeah. Never said boo about it. And within 24 hours, with a hashtag, the president released a statement. Um, now, you know, has that stopped their stuff from being vandalized? I don't think so. I'm sure it still happened. But I also know that, you know, in the next year with the administration's support, um, I knew some of the some of the um, embraces, the name of their group. I knew some of the embrace organizers um, and I saw some of the some of the workshops that they did in that next year. And they did a workshop on white privilege. They did a workshop on Black Lives Matter. They had a sit in in the commons, like all these things. And so, like, I, I think that it it became a part of a larger conversation that obviously has a super long way to go. And. Um, you know, is not at all in any way, even in a good place, probably. But, um, but being, I mean, being historically true, I, I mean, we're the kind of, I know I was the kind of person who always thought the embrace folks were too angry. Yeah. And oh, at the time, for sure. I know yeah. I argued for reverse racism mm-hmm. in one of my yep. urban studies classes. Like, I mean, the, the, it, it gives me hope that those were definitely opinions that I used to have and, and, and I've learned so much. Um, it, 
that anybody who says that Twitter activism is not real yeah. can can suck it because it's like, like honestly it has changed so much <laughs> of the way that I uh-huh. the way that I live my life the things that I believe the the endeavors that I give my life to I mean Twitter has really uh-huh. really affected those yeah. things well and it's a real way of like you know like you can actually get results because you know as much as like. I don't know. I feel like there's been a lot of articles like disparaging like public shaming and stuff. And I'm like, well, okay, maybe shaming. If you take the Brene Brown uh, like delineation between shame and guilt, like shame says you are bad. Guilt says you did something bad. So maybe I don't want to publicly shame people, but I do want to publicly guilt people frequently when they do bad things, which they do. So like, I don't have a problem with like using Twitter to publicly guilt people because that gets things done. And it well, changes things. Yes. You know, like. You're, yes. <laughs> Emily. I'm a, I'm a bit more of a hardliner than Hannah is, but that's okay. <laughs> Not everybody has to be like me. Praise the Lord. We have always, uh, Emily and I have always uh, seen ourselves. Emily's kind of like the, the, <laughs> the person who comes in and like destroys all of the oppressive systems. And I see myself more as kind of like the rebuilder and the comforter and you know sort of I also really want I come people, in and clean up after your mess I also really want people to like me though so like it's really hard to be like a hardliner but also <laughs> want people to like you <laughs> must be right it's difficult <laughs> I on again from a, even just to to mention as far as with the with the twitter stuff um there's still I even there's still a lot to there's a lot for someone to learn even by listening um yeah uh, there's there's so much um there's so much that that story about mbi privilege is amazing yeah like it's absolutely amazing and also if you follow something like that um it'll widen your perspective a bit like being mm-hmm. on twitter when when another black uh, when a black person is shot mm-hmm. and, and seeing the the black members of twitter be just mourning in public and, and being mm-hmm. enraged that's going to change your perspective than if you see mm-hmm. your same yeah. your same uncle from wherever you know uh, disparaging it on facebook um yeah so i i think there's a real value there to the activism i think it's really wonderful and i think it's really wonderful to participate in it's really wonderful to observe as well um one thing i one thing i i always also kind of like to ask is um Kind of like where are you now? Where do you, uh, especially when it comes to, um, especially when it comes to your understanding of 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 God and of the whole <laughs> idea of Christianity? Um, I mean, are you, do you still identify that way? And, and if so, why why do you stay amidst yeah. all the sort of? What do you still find to be um, redemptive and and seeing the world this way? Yeah, what makes you want to stay. Um, my therapist asked me what God is to me the other day, and I was like, I don't know that I can, like, I was like, that isn't, she asked me, what she asked me was, what is God to you? Do you pray when you have anxiety? And I was like, if I prayed when I had anxiety, I think that I would feel like an idiot. Um, and that's just like a real honest answer of like, I, so I like, I'm in a space where like, because of the way that God was so intensely personalized and anthropomorphized. Growing up, like, I'm in a place right now where it's really difficult for me to think of God in those sort of personal terms, you know, Um, because I think that, and Hannah, I think, probably has a different experience, but for me, like, 
um, there was a lot of things attributed to God and to the Holy Spirit growing up that were just like, just crazy stuff that like, does not like, you know, just like God wants you to do this. Jesus is your friend. He's personally in your heart as your savior. And like, and I don't, that's not, well, first of all, it's not in the Bible. And second of all, um, second of all, like, I don't know, it just feels so like strange for me to think of God in those terms. So, um, I go to Episcopal church. Um, I'm not confirmed, but I teach Sunday school. I bring casseroles. Um, you know, I, like I, I am entrenched in the faith community and it's also what I know, you know, like I'll sit down to write a poem and all of my language, all of my metaphor is biblical, you know? Um, like, it's just kind of, it's whatever they call it, like your heart language or whatever, but like, that's what mine is. And so, um, I like to think that there is a reason for that. Um, and, and also, um, we heard Nadia Bowles Weber speak last winter, um, and she was on her book tour and, um, she was talking about like saying creeds at church and stuff. And she was like, you don't have to mean it all the time. Maybe you've believed for a really long time. Maybe it's time to take a break and let somebody else believe for you. That's how Hmm. church works. And I was like, that sounds good. I need to take a break. Um, so, um, that's where I'm at right now, but you know, I teach Sunday school. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's valid. I think that's valid. I, I, I think that whenever you experience and when you're, um, when you're coming to terms with trauma or you're coming to terms with like a, a painful experience, um, sometimes it's best to disengage for a while, uh, and not try to go whole hog. <laughs> like I, yeah. um, one of the things that to me, um, like I'm trying to dissect as through, as part of this project I'm doing is there's a, I feel like a false dichotomy within mm-hmm. like the sort of evangelical mindset that it's your life is either all about God all the time. Always, always, always every single thing you listen to Christian music, yeah. you, you read Christian books, you, you, everything about your life is, is drenched in it. Or, or you're Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. Or you're an atheist or you're, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you're, there's no middle ground and yeah. like, it, it's not tenable. It's not, it doesn't feel human. It doesn't feel and the way, the way that's presented doesn't feel authentic. Uh, authentic yeah. is a, is kind of a shitty word. I like, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a shitty word, but uh, you know, people can throw it around or make it a branding term or something, but, mm-hmm. um, but what that, authentic. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but to me that like part of processing coming to terms with that is being comfortable with taking a break, so to speak, or disengaging or stepping back or however you yeah. want to phrase it. There's mm-hmm. so many different ways to phrase it, but it's the honest thing to do. Yeah. Um, I'm trying not to beat myself up too much about it. Yeah. And it's, um, and, and it's, it's, it's hard when you, when you have that mindset. Um, but, mm-hmm. but it's also just giving, giving yourself space to, uh-huh. to become more human. And I think that's something that God, God respects as far as. Yeah. I, I have to believe that if God is at all loving, uh, he, she, they, uh, will understand and you know absolutely i think i think they would get it so what about you hannah how about how about you 
Um, I, I do, I, it's, I have the same but different kind of thing going on. Um, I was never able to get down with the high church. I, I, I love it as an idea. I'll go sometimes, but I get really overwhelmed with all of the creeds and the readings. And it's just like, it's too much for me to take in. So, um, I have miraculously found a congregation here in Nashville or just outside of Nashville that, um, has all the trappings of evangelicalism, but is, um, just overwhelmingly affirming, um, of the queer community, um, is very, very active and outspoken about issues of racism and xenophobia and, um, do an amazing job of kind of dismantling, um, evangelical thought processes and theologies. Um, but, but outwardly kind of has some of the, the same way of going about a service as an evangelical church. And for me, that has been, um, healing in ways that I can't even begin to express, um, to be able to, you know, sing alongside, um, queer folks and to be welcomed by, uh, by, you know, communities that are largely marginalized by the white Christian system, um, has been, um, incredible for me. Although I would say like, even at the, even still, um, going to church carries so much like pain and weight in it Mm -hmm. that I can only, I, I can't, I can't make it every Sunday. I can't go even sometimes, once a month. I mean, I just, I, I, I would really, go half the amount that I go if I wasn't teaching Sunday school. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I do not. <laughs> um, I would say I have a lot more of like sort of a mystic understanding of God, just, just in general. So for me, kind of, I always have felt like, like the evangelicalism as a system never sat right with me. And I always sort of believed that I had this, that me and God had this secret and that Mm -hmm. I could like feel God in the wind and in nature and just that I could like commune with the divine in that way. And that didn't seem like the right biblical way to do it, but I was just (laughs) kind of like, yeah, but me and God, like on the down low, like we, we have this thing going on. Um, and so Anyway, um, I, but I, so I would say that the, the way that I perceive God, um, is still inherently Christian in a lot of ways, but I have found some solace in sort of like, uh, some of the more like Buddhist mentalities lately with meditation and just like sort of, I don't know, just trying to, trying to heal myself, heal my brain, heal Mm -hmm. my life. Um, and so. So I would say uh, I'm I'm just about as doubt filled as Emily is, but I I am finding other ways of assuaging that. And it's interesting because I I'm I, I would in no way call myself an atheist, but at the same time I um I'm definitely in a in a faith transition. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what to or or what that looks like entirely, but obviously not in any kind of a rebellious way. They always made it out like, you know, you lose your faith and you become this rebel. And, really and it's, don't, though. I, it, it very much matters to me. Like, it yeah. is very 
at the forefront of my thoughts and my actions in my life. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't in any way say that I have landed on anything that feels like home for me yet. And that may, yeah, may take a long time. Well, and it's weird because you don't, you don't set out to, um, you know, and maybe, so maybe the slippery slope is real, (laughs) (laughs) but, but you get to the bottom and you find out there's beer and (laughs) and it's kind of fun down here. Um, and it's way less pressure, but also like, you know, you don't, what I was going to say is like, you don't set out to like, um, you don't set out to like wake up one morning and like not believe any of the things that you used to believe. Um, but you kind of like let things go one at a time, you know, until you wake up and you're like, I don't really recognize. And maybe like, it has to all be that torn down in order to build something again. Yeah. You know? I don't, I, it's not as, it's not as threatening to me. And maybe that's like the slow change thing, but like, you know, like I, I don't feel, I don't feel that I have, lost my faith I feel that it has through like a very slow process of like painful metamorphosis become something else and is still becoming something else it may never stop becoming something else yeah but I feel like it's like if a butterfly was like well I lost my caterpillar self like (laughs) no (laughs) like it's still inside of you you're just something else now yeah, and it's it's you've lost your world and now you've gained it. I mean, yeah. to use biblical language, I mean that's that's part of it. Um, yeah, yeah, and it and you know, I I think I'd love to in whatever way affirm that both of you are doing the honest thing, and to me that's that's wonderful. I have a uh, a friend that uh, a friend of mine that did the show um, before Stephen Jones. He uh, likes to quote Carl Rahner, I believe is the yeah. writer and who has a saying that, um, the Christian of the, the Christian of the future will either be a mystic or nothing at all or not exist mm-hmm. at all. Um, <laughs> and I think, <laughs> and I think that, um, and I think that all those different things, um, play into that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, that may be the sort of trend that Christianity begins to take, uh, yeah. And the way that we can we can reconcile Christianity to uh, a modern lifestyle or a modern life or a modern view of the world. <laughs> I think that it has to. People are out there wringing their hands about, oh, like, you know, discrimination and we're going to lose ourselves. Like, nothing that's being lost by Christianity right now is um, anything that it's not better off without. Um, right. And getting Getting people to see that, I think, is the challenge. Yeah, yeah. And... Another friend, Kyle, who is a Marine vet, I mean, he's been, his life has been completely, like, meditation for him has been a lifesaver, like, in a very literal way. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I started doing yoga. And so, Uh and all those things are beneficial. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so being open to them and honest with where you are, I think, is the most, is is the best way to, to move forward, especially given all the things that you're processing and the things that you're that yeah. both of you are doing in public to try to help other people um, learn these things about themselves as well. So mm-hmm. it's very good work you're doing. I'm very thankful that you agreed uh, to talk to me for a while. Thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, where can everybody find you online? Please plug all your things. <laughs> okay. So first of all, uh, the flawless is our joint project. 
Um, and also if you are a, a female identifying human, uh, you can also email us at flawlessbloggers at gmail.com if you like want to share something. Uh, it's on, your story. Yeah. We will probably take it. Probably. <laughs> like in, in all, in, in most likelihood. Um, we're super chill. Um, and then, uh, so I do, uh, performance poetry, as you probably know. So I'm emilyjoypoetry.com. Um, it's my job. So, uh, if you are in charge of a thing, uh, such as a church or a school or a conference or a festival, you should, um, bring me to that thing. Hannah? (laughs) Um, I am a rock and roll singer. Um, I, I perform under the stage name Ida Gray. Um, if you search for Ida Gray on Facebook or Spotify or iTunes, you can find um, a few of my recordings. Um, I also have uh, a beautiful website in the making that my beautiful future sister-in-law has created for me. And you can find that at idagray.weebly.com. Um, and if you're in Nashville, hit me up and come out to a show. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And uh, do you guys have Twitter ham- Twitter handles you want to plug to for Twitter folk? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Hannah Posh. That's P-A-A-S-C-H. I'm Emily Joy Poetry on Twitter. And then um, the Flawless Project is at Flawless Proj, I believe. Mm P-R-O-J. Great. Thank you again uh, so much for for sharing your stories. And I'd love to have you back again and have uh, even further conversations about this sort of stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you. We appreciate it. We teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Because I am female, I am expected to aspire to marriage. I am expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. A marriage can be a source of joy and love and mutual support. But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or for accomplishments, which I think can be a good thing, but for the attention of men. We teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way that boys are. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. You wake up, post up, Round, round in it, lost on it, this diamond.